It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hello, lover of things to go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. Angel of Mercy is based in part on the book The Death Shift, the true story of nurse Janine Jones and the Texas baby murders by Peter Elkind. Due to the graphic nature of this criminal's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Angels of Death. Serial killers who have come to represent the most insidious type of human betrayal, committed by the very people we entrust with our lives and the lives of our children. Nurses, doctors, and hospice staff we place an enormous amount of authority in their hands, and we blindly trust them to assist us in our hour of need. What happens when they abuse that trust? What can you do when your heavenly helper becomes your worst nightmare? These serial killers seek out positions of authority in hospitals, old age homes, and asylums, and then satisfy their murderous impulses by preying on those in their care. Christus approached the Smith County District Attorney's Office and the Tyler Police Department with concerns that a nurse may have been involved in intentionally harming, causing harm to patients at one of their hospitals. These patients were experiencing unexplained symptoms inconsistent with their treatment and recovery. It should come as no surprise that many of the most terrifying and successful angels of death in history have been women. Today, we're going to take you on a terrifying tour through the life of Janine Jones, a pediatric nurse who is believed to have killed between 11 and 46 infants and toddlers in the space of just five years. Janine Jones was sentenced to 99 years in prison in 1985 for the fatal overdose death of a baby in her care. But because of a mandatory release law in effect at the time, she's due to be freed from a Texas prison next March. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Vanessa. 
and you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're going to explore the twisted mind of child killer Janine Jones. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Angels of death are a special subset of serial killers. They target those who are most vulnerable and ignored, the elderly and children, those who often can't call out for help, and those who rely upon the killer for care. They thrive in chaotic environments where the families of their victims are at the mercy of their specialized knowledge and professions. Chaotic environments where their murderous impulses can be mistaken for misdiagnoses, human error, or even dismissed as the will of God. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, killers who camouflage themselves as healers, and they are notoriously difficult to identify even after they've killed their victims. Janine Jones is a modern-day child killer who operated out of San Antonio, Texas from 1977 to 1982. At the height of her reign of terror, Jones was linked to the deaths of 34 infants over a 15-month period. In part one of our Janine Jones podcast, we'll take a look at Janine before the incidents that led to her arrest and dive deep into the psychology of a young woman whose pathological need for attention would eventually drive her to murder children. In part two, we'll wade into a serial killer's world as she preys on her patients while protected by a corrupt medical system. Her killing spree lasted as the direct result of a hospital hush-up that allowed her to continue practicing as a nurse despite the link between her and the children's deaths. Janine Ann Jones was born on July 13, 1950, and was immediately given up for adoption by her birth parents. It was a closed adoption, so the location of her birth is unknown, as are the names of her birth parents. What we do know is that she was born somewhere in Texas. The third of four adopted children, Janine was an excitable and dramatic girl who sought validation where she could get it. Smart, self-reliant, and proactive, her parents, Dick and Gladys, believed she was the Jones child with the brightest future. Perhaps this is because Dick and Gladys saw themselves most in Janine, even though they weren't biologically related. Dick Jones was a self-made man with a notorious silver tongue. He could sell bread to a baker. Acting as his own agent, manager, and public relations specialist, he amassed a web of small gambling houses and nightclubs in San Antonio that would stay popular for decades. Gladys was a go-getter too. Even though she was plain and almost reclusive, she had a steely resolve and business acumen that took the family far. Gladys was the behind-the-scenes force in the Jones nightclub business, while Dick ran the front of the house. The couple applied the same unflappable resolve to starting a family. When they learned that they could not have biological children, they simply put in their application for adoption in 1943. They adopted their oldest daughter, Lisa, later that year, 
and their son Wiley arrived in 1946. It would be another four years before Janine joined the family in 1950, and two more before their final child, Travis, arrived in 1952. Janine seemed to acquire a mixture of her parents' qualities, good and bad. She was intelligent and sociable like her father, but also desperately needed attention like him. She had her mother's drive, but she also shared her mother's plainness and bossiness. Gladys had found a way to use these shortcomings to her advantage as she helped build the family's business empire. Janine, however, was not comfortable being ignored. As smart as Janine was, she was unmotivated in her classes. As self-reliant as she could be, she told teachers, counselors, and family members that her dreams began and ended with the hope of having a gaggle of children of her own one day. She also exhibited a pathological need to be in control. At school, she would hang out in the library and chastise other students when they messed around. If she thought they were studying the wrong way, she would instruct them how they should study and despise them when they ignored her. This left Janine with few school friends through the early 1960s. There was also too big an age difference between Janine and her siblings Lisa and Wiley to form a friendship. They were already out of high school, leading their own lives. Even though Janine had a boyfriend, a high school dropout named Jimmy Delaney, she still wanted a companion. Janine found herself relying more and more on her younger brother, Travis, who was two years her junior and who she considered her best friend. Curiously, new insights into power control dichotomies have shown that Janine may have been shooting herself in the foot by acting this way with her peers. Research by psychologists Richard S. Markin and Timothy A. Carey suggests that we're all control freaks in our own ways. The problem arises when we try to micromanage the process of control instead of focusing on the outcome. Janine didn't just want the other students to study, she wanted them to study the way she thought was correct. A controlling person tells someone how to walk, talk, and think instead of encouraging progress toward the more general goal of behaving better. Research by the Glendon Association has found that this need for control can stem from several sources, including narcissism, inability to control themselves, and fear of abandonment. Fear of abandonment is often a common problem for children of adoption. The early abandonment leads to something called ambiguous loss. Ambiguous because adoptive children often have very limited information about the circumstances of their birth. Several studies by the North American Council on Adoptable Children and several papers published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships examine ambiguous loss and its effects on adopted children, the loss of control over what they know about themselves and their biological families can lead to grief, helplessness, and anger. Even children adopted out of terrible situations can experience this loss. Several studies at Oxford University and the National Institutes of Health have shown a link between some adoptees and feelings of abandonment that persist throughout their lives. These feelings can lead to aggression, lack of self-esteem, and a need to control others because they feel powerless in their own lives. 
further studies by the National Institutes of Health, Princeton University, and Dr. Daniel A. Hughes have shown that adopted children go through the same stages of development as children raised by biological parents, with one potentially big difference. Some internalize early abandonment, and they grow to resent it and or become deeply insecure about it. We need to stress here, however, that only some adoptees struggle with this. Most adoptees, including Janine's older siblings, go on to live normal, productive lives. Janine's younger brother, Travis, wouldn't be so lucky. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to our story. In 1966, when Janine Jones was just 16 years old, tragedy struck the family. Inspired by their father's hobby for tinkering away on business ideas in his workshop, 14-year-old Travis decided to build a pipe bomb. One of Dick Jones' workers saw Travis messing with components at the workbench, and when he went to intervene, the teenager's pipe bomb exploded, wounding the worker and driving pieces of metal and bone into Travis's brain, killing him instantly. The hows and whys of Travis building a bomb are lost to time and speculation. What we do know is that Travis's death was a watershed moment for Janine. Onlookers claim Janine collapsed with grief at his funeral. Her best friend was gone. However, Janine's pathological need for control also reared its head that day. She spent much of the memorial telling both her mother and the fellow mourners everything they were doing wrong. On the flip side, her brother's death also gave Janine something she felt she had never experienced to her satisfaction before, attention and sympathy. Classmates were kinder to her. Teachers let her get away with more. Her father also became more active in her life and eventually replaced Travis as her best friend. She was learning a dangerous lesson, that people treated her better and gave her what she wanted when bad things happened to her when she was a victim or associated with a victim. Janine used Travis's death to excuse all manner of behaviors, from getting a low test score to lying to teachers. She became obsessed with driving fast cars and winning races against other kids at school. She lied to police and her parents to get out of trouble when she was caught driving recklessly. When Travis's death no longer elicited sympathy, Janine began telling intricate, emotional lies. When she got in trouble at school, she once told the administrators that her parents had never adopted her legally, like they had her brothers and sister. When her older sister received diamond earrings for Christmas, Janine sulked for weeks, even though the sewing machine she received had cost more. She told classmates her parents didn't love her as much as her older sister. Then, unfortunately for Janine, real tragedy struck again. In 1968, when Janine was just 17 years old, her father Dick passed away following a prolonged illness. Dick's death seemed to genuinely crush her. Janine would later say that the world went dark the day her father died. In just two short years, both her younger brother and her father, the two people to whom she was closest in the world, were taken from her. These deaths impacted Janine's life tremendously, as you would expect, guiding her in a direction she might not have otherwise gone. 
Anthropological studies conducted by Dr. Ernest Becker have shown that reminders of death tend to push us to bolder action in regards to what we want. For example, a man who desires fame might suddenly move to Los Angeles after the death of a personal friend. A woman who refused to marry might suddenly elope. In Janine's case, she turned all of her focus and energy at the end of her high school career into starting a family of her own. And Janine already had a beau willing to marry her, her high school dropout boyfriend, Jimmy Delaney. Their two-year relationship to this point had been fueled by their mutual love for cars, her racing them and him restoring them. Jimmy spent every extra penny he earned on buying and renovating cars, even though he was as clumsy as a mechanic as he was in every other aspect of his life. He could barely hold down a job, and he had no prospects. Gladys had hoped Jimmy was a passing phase in Janine's life, until 17-year-old Janine announced that she and Jimmy were engaged and asked for Gladys' permission to marry. Gladys refused. Gladys hated Jimmy. He was irresponsible, and she could see the life her daughter would have with a man like that. As Janine was a minor, withholding permission was the only way Gladys could keep Janine from making the biggest mistake of her life. The months before Janine's high school graduation were rife with conflict as Gladys and Janine fought like cats and dogs. Janine hated that Gladys wouldn't give her what she wanted, and she punished Gladys for it. Janine accused Gladys of never having loved her, and when Gladys began drinking to deal with the fighting, Janine convinced family friends that her mother was an unloving alcoholic, crushing her child's dreams. Gladys eventually gave in to her daughter's manipulation. Janine's wedding to Jimmy took place on June 15, 1968, a few days after her high school graduation and a month before her 18th birthday. Unfortunately, Janine's need for control tipped her marriage toward disaster early. She belittled Jimmy constantly in public because he couldn't keep a job. And when he enrolled in the Navy in 1969 to ensure some sense of financial security for his family, Janine began cheating on him before he even finished boot camp. At only 19 years old, Janine was already a consummate liar and a convincing actor. She told her friends elaborate tales of muggings and stabbings she had survived and of childhood indiscretions with adults. So when she started telling her closest friends about the various married men she was sleeping with, they took Janine's stories with a grain of salt. Except that this time, she seemed to be bragging about the truth. She took several of her friends' husbands as lovers and boasted about the affairs to other friends when they went out cruising. The friends would later tell reporters that while it bothered them to hear her recall explicit details to them about her affairs, they were never really sure how much of it was real and how much of it was exaggerated for effect. She began having sex in places where there was a high chance someone could see them, like she was trying to get caught. She told her married lovers that her husband Jimmy was neglectful and that she was a nymphomaniac. They claimed they believed her, even though several of the men she slept with were longtime friends of her husband. Janine's cluster of symptoms are starting to come into sharp focus. Lying, manipulation, sexual misconduct, blaming her behavior on others, and perhaps most importantly, getting away with her behavior and feeling no remorse for it. 
These are all the telltale red flags of a burgeoning psychopath and foreshadowed the coming of age of a dangerous woman. In 1969, Janine boasted about the affairs publicly and tried to engage in sexual acts in more and more public places where the chances of being caught were high. She would also take naked photographs of herself and leave them in conspicuous places, like in the diaper bag of a friend whose husband she was sleeping with. These are all behaviors associated with a possible psychopathy diagnosis. One of the most respected psychopathy studies of the last 100 years was carried out at the University of British Columbia by psychologist Robert D. Hare in the 1970s. He created what is known as the PCLR, the psychopathy checklist, which includes what he calls three constellations of traits that psychopaths exhibit. These three constellations include, quote, interpersonal deficits, such as grandiosity, arrogance, and deceitfulness, affective deficits like lack of guilt and empathy, and impulsive and criminal behaviors, including sexual promiscuity and stealing. End quote. Sounds like Janine is batting a thousand. Mm-hmm. The tragic reality is that these traits all have something unfortunate in common. They're often easy to hide. Dr. Hervey M. Cleckley, who coined the term psychopath in 1941, described a psychopath as someone who appears normal at first glance, even charming, but who lies freely and guiltlessly and who cares only about themselves. They're often reckless, irresponsible, uninhibited in satisfying their desires, and they blame others for their behavior. It was this type of careless behavior that created difficult circumstances for Janine Jones as she grew out of her teen years. By 1970, 20-year-old Janine found herself unable to make ends meet. She was living in a cottage on a piece of property owned by her mother while her husband was serving in the Navy. When her mother moved to a new house and sold the land, Janine had a choice to make. Either move into a house with her mother or get a job. She enrolled in a trade school to become a beautician. Janine made great use of her skills of manipulation in school. She cut her hair short and dyed it blonde and told classmates and teachers that her name was Jojo. She was gregarious, lewd, and talented. The clients loved Jojo. For a few months, Janine had purpose, attention, and success. In late 1970, Janine joined her husband in Albany, Georgia, where he was stationed at the U.S. Naval Air Station. Janine found work as a beautician and discovered she was pregnant with her first child in 1971 at the age of 21. The one dream she had set for herself had come true. She was finally going to be a mother. Yet problems seemed to plague the family. Jimmy had always been a wild man, a distinction that didn't sit well with the Navy. They discharged him three years into a four-year post on September 29, 1971, and he seemed to pick up right where he left off, unable to keep a job and spending all the money he managed to earn on cars. Things escalated even further when Janine gave birth to a son on January 29, 1972. Janine named him Richard Edward Delaney, after her father, but called him Edward for short. Edward's arrival created a deeper wedge between Janine and Jimmy. Janine felt unsupported, and when Edward was only four months old, Jimmy returned home to find his wife and son missing. 
Janine moved back to San Antonio in May of 1972 and filed for divorce several months later, claiming that Jimmy was violent and abusive. Their divorce was finalized two years later in 1974. Now a single mother at 23, Janine supported herself and her child by working as a hairdresser at the San Antonio Methodist Hospital Beauty Parlor. Jimmy showed no interest in his son. Janine later told reporters that she felt ashamed that her son didn't have his father there growing up. Her dream of a family had turned into a nightmare, a nightmare that would continue to get worse. In 1974, Janine's older brother Wiley died of testicular cancer at only 28 years old. This incident, along with an allergy Janine developed to the products she was using as a beautician, triggered an aggressive case of hypochondria. Her sister would later recall that Janine became so paranoid about cancer and illness that even the faintest scratch would send her into a panic. Janine began seeing phantom symptoms of terrible medical disorders in all of her family members, but especially in her son, Edward. Worse still, she seemed to gain validation from making those around her worry for their health. Friends would say that it was like she wanted her predictions of illness to come true, affirming her suspicions and giving her authority in the eyes of family and friends. It's unclear whether it was her obsession with illness or the sense of authority over people's health that inspired Janine to switch professions, but she began training to become a vocational nurse in 1976 when she was 26 years old. She took to training like a duck to water. Janine received high grades despite barely reviewing the material and sometimes showing off a deep lack of professionalism. She would tell her teachers dirty jokes and cut her classmates' hair instead of studying. Janine excelled at school, despite misbehaving and despite the fact that she was pregnant with her second child. A one-night reconnection with ex-husband Jimmy Delaney had given her a second shot at parenthood. Despite the unexpected pregnancy complication, Janine earned her highest grade, a 97, in maternity and childcare and passed her final nursing exam with a score that was 200 points above average. She graduated with honors in May 1977. Two months after graduation, Janine gave birth to her daughter, Crystal, on July 17, 1977. A month later, San Antonio Methodist Hospital, the very hospital where she had once worked as a beautician, hired Janine as a nurse. From the outside, Janine seemed to finally be the bright, shining Jones child everyone thought she would be. Unfortunately, her first two assignments as a nurse proved problematic. She seemed to be her own worst enemy. In April 1978, she was fired from San Antonio Methodist Hospital after working there for less than eight months. Her need to be in control and her willingness to bend the rules didn't fly in an environment where patients could talk back. She was dismissed from her first position after an incident in which she impatiently grabbed a cardiac patient's leg and then ignored the hospital's orders to stay away from the patient after the patient complained. She lost her second nursing position at a private hospital in an almost grossly poetic fashion. The woman who had wanted a gaggle of children had decided that two was her limit. She requested to have her tubes tied, but because the procedure was elective and she had not been at the private hospital long enough to earn sick leave, she was told to wait. 
and we know how Janine felt about being told what to do. She refused to postpone and was forced to resign on October 16, 1978, during recovery from the surgery. Her second nurse posting had lasted only five months. Janine found herself looking for her third job in 13 months, but she didn't have to wait long. San Antonio was experiencing one of the worst nursing shortages in decades, and despite the incidents that had lost her her jobs, her employers had liked her. On October 30th, 1978, at just 28 years old, Janine Jones was hired as a pediatric nurse at Bear County Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. Unfortunately for a number of families and their children, this nursing position stuck. Janine had landed a job in the pediatric ICU ward, where her mistakes and insidious behavior could be dismissed as a statistic, where her worst qualities would be praised, and where she could hide in plain sight. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Now, our story continues. By October of 1978, Janine Jones had finally found a stable nursing position at Bear County Hospital during a nursing crisis in San Antonio. In the 1970s, San Antonio was a city of haves and have-nots. Thousands of poor Mexican immigrants were living in temporary shacks in a flat area of downtown where frequent flooding sent streams of human feces into their shelters. Tuberculosis and sexually transmitted infections spread like wildfire. <coughs> Violent outbursts caused by close quarters and low quality of life flung thousands of stabbing and assault victims into the city's Green Charity Hospital every year. In part due to the condition of its clientele, Green Charity Hospital earned a notorious reputation that drove away wealthier patients and funding. When San Antonio broke ground on Bayer County Hospital in the affluent part of town, instead of updating Green Charity Hospital, all hell broke loose. A highly publicized federal trial tried to force the city to update the charity hospital closest to the city's impoverished Hispanic and Latino population. When the city won, Green Charity Hospital lost its maternity ward to Bayer County after one witness claimed the conditions in Green were equivalent to triage on a battlefield. The nearly 6,000 women who relied on Green's birthing ward each year and the thousands of worried parents with sick children would now have to trek across town to Bayer, despite few having cars or being able to rely on the city's problematic public transportation. If patients could get there, they could receive the care they sought at the price they could afford, essentially turning Bayer into a partial charity hospital. In the aftermath of such a public trial, Bayer needed to convince the entire country that it could seamlessly cater to all of the city's myriad needs. It needed to appear beyond reproach. However, because the hospital was more concerned with the appearance of good work rather than the reality of it, they became less scrupulous when it came to hiring nurses in the midst of San Antonio's nursing crisis. Despite two dismissals from previous nursing positions, 28-year-old Janine Jones was hired as a pediatric ICU nurse at Bayer in 1978, after only a cursory interview and a phone call to confirm that her nursing license was up to date. The pediatric ICU 
was a corner of the hospital where infants and children up to 16 years of age came to seek treatment for or recovery from injury, illness, or accident. The only exceptions were newborns, who were tended to in the neonatal ICU on another floor. But Janine had a rough introduction to the brutality and fickleness of life in this part of the hospital. Within a week of starting work, Janine had experienced her first ICU death. The sudden death of a six-day-old struck her so hard that other nurses in the ICU began guessing when she would turn in her resignation letter. We should note there's no indication that she was involved in this infant's death. Unlike in other areas of the hospital where patients could be left for periods of time without care, the pediatric ICU required constant nurse vigilance. The nurses would be assigned to one or two patients, administering drugs, cleaning, and feeding them whenever they needed. The ICU's patients were completely helpless. And this is where the qualities that were once so concerning in a teenage girl began to earn Janine the type of validation and approval she had always desired. She was a natural-born problem solver, and she blossomed in situations where she could make all the decisions. The most successful ICU nurses were the most persistent, and those who could remain focused even in times of chaos. Janine was everything the hospital had been looking for, her quick thinking and willingness to learn impressed doctors, nurses, and the administration. The ease with which Janine took things to extremes made her a natural at a high-stakes job where she was needed at an almost fanatical level. It probably fulfilled needs she had tried to satisfy unsuccessfully her entire life. Her crowning skill, however, was being able to find the vein in any patient even in infants whose veins could be as thin as strands of hair. She was the IV whisperer, and doctors and nurses across the pediatric wing sought her out to begin IVs when their patients' veins proved elusive. She also regularly volunteered for extra shifts and made friends quickly among the nursing bureaucracy of the hospital that decided whether nurses were retained or fired after mistakes were made. Her supervisors loved her and often compared other nurses to Janine in their hiring reviews. The parents of her patients also adored her and relied upon her like a trusted friend. You can see how to an objective party, Janine's behavior could be attributed to someone finally finding their purpose and passion in life. But if you look closely, you'll notice a pattern here. Her once negative qualities are being reinforced in a life or death environment. She's making herself indispensable, lulling others into a false sense of comfort and cozying up to those with authority over her. Authority figures who should have noticed signs of the terrible things to come. The praise Janine received from superiors was whitewashing the pernicious and progressive mistakes she was making. In 1979, she was cited for eight mistakes of varying danger, from nearly drowning a patient in saline solution to messing with a patient's IV while drunk and off-duty. These offenses that could have seen her suspended and eventually fired were dismissed as learning opportunities. When she made multiple medication mistakes that could have killed her patients, she was ordered to take a supplemental training class and never punished when she failed to show. And despite so many legitimate causes for concern, her first year at Bear County Hospital ended with Janine being praised for her work by her superiors. 
shielded from scrutiny by her superior's praise, more of Janine's dangerous qualities began to rear their ugly heads. She became notorious for claiming her patients had all manner of illness, the more deadly the better. She would end her shifts by reporting to other nurses which babies she thought wouldn't make it through the night. Worried parents, hospital administration, nurses, and interns mistook her hypochondria for passionate concern for her patients. But it began to wear on residents and physicians. Those who gave Janine the benefit of the doubt praised her for trying to get ahead of problems, but that only seemed to encourage her. Even though nurses often bring medical concerns to light and save doctors from life-threatening mistakes, Doctors have authority in a hospital setting to make the final call for patients. When Bear's doctors ignored Janine's warnings of illness, however, they would arrive to their patients' sides to find Janine already administering drugs based on her own diagnoses or pushing syringes filled with the wrong fluids. When the doctors took their concerns to the hospital administration and the nursing board, Janine defended herself by saying she knew what was best for her patients. From atop her rickety moral high horse, she would make grand and dramatic proclamations about those in her care, that they were going to die and that the doctors were complicit in their murders by ignoring her advice and warnings. More often than not, she received slaps on the wrist for her disobedience. Despite all the effort she put in at work, however, she seemed to avoid as much time with her own family as possible. Her children were growing up without her, raised mostly by her mother Gladys. Edward was a rambunctious eight-year-old beginning to act out in ways that eerily echoed his mother. He lied and stole often and accused Janine of favoring his three-year-old sister. Janine avoided responsibility for his behavior, dropping him off at therapy and taking on extra shifts at the hospital. It seemed she preferred the fantasy of family to the reality. Friends and her boyfriend, Steve Subert, were convinced Janine cared about the ICU babies more than life itself. They believed she loved them as if they were her own, obsessively watching over them when they were in her care, mourning her patients when things took a turn for the worse, soaking up the sympathy indirectly, as she had done when her brother had died. Yet her own children were left by the wayside, you would think, given how easy it was for her to manipulate everyone else, that she could put on the show for her own children. The difference there, of course, is that she didn't receive the same level of praise and sympathy for taking care of her own family as she would for taking care of the children of strangers. As seems to be a recurring pattern for Janine, the appearance of caring earned her so much more validation and sympathy than the reality. Janine dealt with the stresses of family in two tried and true ways. She began lying again about having been in a coma, about shooting her brother-in-law following a domestic violence dispute with her sister Lisa, about losing her daughter's father in a car accident, and her hypochondria flared up again. In 1980 alone, she visited half a dozen doctors complaining of a galaxy of symptoms, from constipation to extreme muscle soreness to neurological disorders, none of which the doctors could corroborate. One doctor went so far as to say that her behavior and claims of pain were so convincing that he questioned his own ability to diagnose her before neurological tests showed no sign of any of the illnesses she claimed to have. 
Imagine being so successfully manipulative that you can convince a doctor with years of experience that you have a terribly painful illness you don't actually have. Even more than that, the doctor actually began to question his own expertise. It's becoming clear just how convincing Janine really was. And of course, every time she convinced a doctor that she had some rare illness, she received more and more attention and sympathy. By 1981, 31-year-old Janine had begun demanding the most critical patients in the pediatric ICU, the patients most likely to die. She would come into shifts early to claim the weakest patients, and when they flatlined, she would push others aside to deliver CPR. If a patient died, she would carry them to the hospital's morgue herself, regardless of whether she had been their nurse or not. It became a ritual for her. Whether she actually cared for the patients remains a mystery, but what is certainly clear is that she's putting on a show, a show that became harder to pull off as she lost seniority in the ward. Janine was a vocational nurse, which meant that with her limited training, she couldn't advance professionally like registered nurses could. During her three years at Bayer, Janine had mentored the inexperienced registered nurses who came to work in her pediatric ICU ward. However, by 1981, they were no longer inexperienced. In fact, they had begun to outpace her training. Of course, that didn't matter to Janine. Janine had been there the longest and had cared the loudest. So in her own mind, she deserved seniority in the ward. The registered nurses in the ward stopped relying on her for advice and stopped letting her take over their cases. And so they became threats to the attention and prestige to which she felt entitled. She needed to find a new way to make people sit up and pay attention. In hospitals, sudden emergencies are called codes. When a patient codes, emergency protocols go into effect, involving anything from CPR to immediate surgery. On average, nurses and doctors might perform four CPR sessions in any given month. However, for four months in 1981, Bayer County Hospital's pediatric ICU experienced a startling and unprecedented surge in the need for CPR. Suddenly, 10 to 20 patients were coding, and they were all coding during the 3 to 11 p.m. shifts with Janine Jones. Many of the children entered the ICU with treatable, non-lethal problems, only to suddenly develop breathing problems. Others were suffering from adjustments to their respirators that seemed to happen out of nowhere while their nurses were away. Nurses started to notice a concerning pattern. A child would code during Janine's 3 to 11 p.m. shift, recover during shifts with other nurses, and suddenly code again when 3 p.m. rolled around and Janine was back on the ward. The four-month stretch from hell in 1981 had begun like many things do, with a single incident. Chris Ojeda, the one-year-old son of Diana and Crescencio Ojeda, had been born with a complicated heart defect, and he had spent half of his life at Bayer's pediatric ICU. The Ojedas trusted Janine. She had been Chris's nurse since the beginning. So when Janine called them in May of 1981 and told them that, quote, Chris was playing with the angels, end quote, 
they quickly packed their car with items intended for their child's funeral and drove three hours to pick up their son's body in San Antonio. In a twist of terrible cruelty and relief all mixed together, the Ojedas arrived to the ICU to discover that their son was very much alive. When they asked to speak with their trusted nurse, they learned that Janine had simply gone home following her shift. A week later, their son was dead. He had succumbed to cardiac arrest with Janine by his side. However, Chris's death had only been the precursor of many others to come. Children admitted for diarrhea suddenly went into cardiac arrest. Chronic seizures suddenly turned lethal. Children recovering from surgery began drowning in their own blood. Respirators mysteriously turned off or had their oxygen concentrations altered. And all of these things seemed to happen between 3 p.m. and 11 p.m. when dedicated, lovable, empathetic Janine Jones was in the ward. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we will conclude our twisted tale of infanticide with child killer Janine Jones. We'll also take a deeper look at the psychology behind angels of death and what drives them to abuse the trust their patients and their families place in them. We will also examine how her killing spree lasted for five years. Remember, Janine Jones killed at more than one hospital before finally being taken into custody. You can learn more about Janine Jones in Peter Elkind's book, The Death Shift, The True Story of Nurse Janine Jones and the Texas Baby Murders, available on Amazon.com. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Female Criminals comes out every Wednesday. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Thanks for listening. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.